We are part of a theme called On Mission Together. So in the month of September, like Anya and Danae said, we are a global family of churches in over 84 countries. Now that doesn't just happen. Obviously it started with one and then there was this intentional vision and dream to see churches being planted in every nation, hence the name Every Nation. And in the month of September, we celebrate something very specific. What is that? Rich Week. All right. Well done, Anki. Yeah, he likes to have Okay, thank you. So if you walk into the venue, you'll see that there's a world map and then there's little pins with, um, what do you call it, rope going towards certain people. And these are our church planters and missionaries that are in the nations. So during Reach Week, we get specific feedback from our missionaries. Um, we get to hear what God is busy doing in the nations. We get to apply our faith alongside those who have gone to pray, give, and go. Um, and we almost re remind ourselves of this great call, this great commission that God has entrusted to us to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, whom of you have a desire for Jesus to come back? Okay, whom of you have a desire for Jesus to come back, but there's things you want to do first, like get married? Okay, not going to point, yeah, yeah, we have one coming up, no, no, okay. Um, where is well, Martinette and them? They're not here, their wedding is almost. Um, so Jesus can come back maybe before the next price increase. That'll be great, right? Okay. Now, if we are serious about Jesus coming back, then he says that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So if we're serious about Christ, if we're serious about seeing Jesus face to face, then that great commission to go into all the nations needs to have priority in our hearts and in our lives. And that's a big focus then for us during Reach Week. But we've extended it to say that we're going to continue with this theme of being on mission together. So for the past two Sundays, we spoke about finances, our resources, how God has entrusted resources to us that enables us to come alongside His plan to reach the nations. And tonight and to, uh, next week, we almost said tomorrow. We never long service, guys. <laughs> um, but tonight and next week, we're going to focus a little bit on a relational aspect of this, being on mission together. So before we continue, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. Your word is alive and active, Lord. It discerns our hearts, our motives, our intentions. It divides between bone and marrow. It knows us deeply and intently. And whether we want to or not, Lord, tonight our lives are subject to your word. And we pray that your word would come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whom of you love puzzles? I don't have one for you, I'm sorry. Next time. I forgot, I forgot my um, puzzle this morning and I forgot it again tonight, so obviously I'm not a big fan of puzzles. <laughs> but my wife likes puzzles, and I like my wife. So last year we went on holiday and we were like saying, okay, what are we going to do? And it was during June, July, so obviously it gets a little bit colder. And we, she said, no, we can build puzzles. And I obviously like jumped for joy, so like, yes, this is what I was born to do. I love puzzles. Um, so we went to buy puzzles. We even bought a puzzle building mat. Do you guys know that you get mats 
that if you're unfinished with the puzzle, you can roll it up. Crazy. So we got one of those as well at home, um, and we bought maybe five puzzles, uh, and uh, we built three of them, two, and then there's still at least two unbuilt, wrapped. Um, yeah, never been seen again. <laughs> but what's important when you build puzzles? Patience, absolutely. A lot of patience. Yes, Anlu? When you build a puzzle, what's the first thing you do? Yeah. The, the corners. Yeah. All right. So you build the corners. Um, that gives you a framework. And then you look for maybe like something on the picture that's quite evident. You say, okay, cool. Let's start with this part of the picture and we see if we can build that quickly. My wife is a very systematic person. Um, and she has a, a, a structure or a, what do you call it, a process. So we put all the corners together. And then you put all of this, the, the same types of colors of pieces together. Um, and then you start with the corners. And now you look at the picture. And she gets to start on the one side and I get to start on the other side. And we've got the colors most now more separated. Um, so you eventually get to start building the puzzle five years later. Um, <laughs> but no one comes out and says, what an incredible puzzle piece. Right? No, it's about the bigger picture. And all the pieces together make up this glorious picture that you could have seen on the box as well. Um, but it's a good time of connection. Okay, we bonded, right? We bonded. That's what's important. Now, for us as individuals, as married couples, as families, um, we are pieces of a much greater puzzle. So it cannot be about the individual pieces. It has to be about a greater picture. So our lives, again, your individual life, your family life, whether you are married or not, whether you have children or not, for us as a church, there is a story that we are telling. But it fits into a much greater story. And that's important for us to know because that means it cannot be about you. If you are only a piece of a greater picture, it cannot be about you. It cannot be about your family. It cannot be about this church. There is something much grander that we are a part of. And our stories, um, there's a story that has been in existence that we get to be part of. And that story has existed before you and it will outlive you as well. So our stories are subject to a much greater story. Now, uh, N.T. Wright, a theologian, gave this illustration to say, some of you know Shakespeare? Okay, O Romeo, O Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? That's all I know. Um, and I almost fell to my death. <laughs> but it was all a play. It was all a play. Um, so there was, he gave this illustration to say, let's say they discovered a play of Shakespeare, but it was incomplete. So there were six acts, but they only discovered manuscripts for Act 1 to 4 and then Act 6. So Act 5 was missing. But they decided that this piece of history is too important not to put on a stage. So then they get together all of the professional actors and people who are historians and they start to study Acts 1 to 4, Act 6. Remember, Act 6 is now the pinnacle of the story, right? That's like the, the climax of what Acts 1 to 5 should be about is to present this Act 6 as the most glorious part of this story. 
and they would study the acts and they would study the culture. Okay, to, to what age was the story written, this play? To what age was it written? And they delve into the culture to discover as much as they can in order to be true to the author's intention for act five. But they don't know it, so they do have to figure it out a little bit. All right, that's that Hollywood improvisation that takes place. Now, for us as the church, there is an act one to four that has been set in place. And it starts with the creation of the world. It, start, it goes, continues with the fall of man. Then um, God's great redemptive purposes throughout all of the Old Testament. Um, God speaking through the prophets, establishing the kings, ultimately building up to the king of kings, Jesus Christ who came to redeem the earth. But then, let's call it Act 4, we see the story of the church. So in the book of Acts, we see the birth of the first church as they now continue the story of, of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament are filled with these letters written to churches for encouragement, for exhortation, for correction, for discipline, whatever it might be that they would need. Um, the, these letters to the churches are then written, but it builds up to Act 6. It's written for us this glorious end picture in the book of Revelation that one day every tribe, language, nation, and tongue will stand before the throne of God and they will worship Jesus. All right, so that's already written. So whatever now happens here in Act 5, we have to follow the story of Act 1 to 4. It's not just a rep repetition of that, but it's a continuation of Act 1 to 4, ultimately building up, setting up, Act 6, the final picture that we see Jesus being worshipped through every language, nation, tribe, and tongue, but also the final restoration of all of creation. And every now and then, we need to pause. Every now and then, you and I need to press pause on our lives because we get busy. Some of you are busy. I know the people who flew up from Cape Town, you were not so busy down in, in the Cape, and you came to Gauteng to be a bit busier. Yeah, so well done. Th welcome. welcome. <laughs> Every now and then, you and I need to press pause and just ask ourselves, is my life still in line with Act 1 to 4, setting up Act 6? Are the things I'm giving my life to still coherent to the story that we see in the Bible? And is my life still building towards this final glorification, not of my puzzle piece, but of the grand picture of Christ? Is my life still heading in that direction? Or are there some changes that I need to make? We see in this story that God has already set certain things in place. So we spoke now about the this final scene where God is being worshipped through every language, tribe, nation, and tongue, and that will happen. It's not a what-if moment. There will be a time where every language, tribe, nation, and tongue is represented before the throne of God, and they will worship the King of Kings. That will happen. The question is, will you, you and I be among the worshippers? That's what needs to be decided. But there will be a place of worship. And I love in the story of Joshua, and I think I read this part of, part of Scripture a couple of Sundays back as well. But in Joshua 5, 13 to 15, so Joshua was um, basically took over the mantle from Moses to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And you know the famous story of Jericho where they marched seven times and the walls of Jericho came down. Now this is building up to that moment. 
And it says from verse 13, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Um, am I pulling you into my rank or are you part of the people that we need to defeat? And that's an important question, right? I think there's a little bit of reverb. Is it just in my head? Okay. All right. Can't do anything about that. <laughs> it's an important moment there where Joshua's in the battlefield and he sees this mighty warrior and says, so are you for us or against us? Are you coming alongside and coming into my rank as for me, I'm the captain of this army, or are you part of the enemy? And then the, the, the man says this, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Very important moment. You see, God has already intended, purposed certain things in his heart which will come to pass. Who will stand against the Lord Almighty? If God has intended for something to be a certain way, who will change God's mind? Who will redirect God's step? Who will stand in the way of God so that God's purposes will not prevail? And here Joshua finds himself in the battlefield and he sees this mighty warrior and says, Are you for us or against us? He says, Neither. I am here to present and to, um, to declare that the army of the Lord has arrived. The question for you, Joshua, is are you for me or against me? And that's where we find ourselves in this great story. That there is a purpose that God has already intended which will play out. And we get to be on God's side. We get to have these moments to say, yes, I'm not pulling God into my rank and He's now coming, being, becoming part of my story. No, I'm setting rank with Him. I'm joining rank with Him. And I'm fitting my story um, into His much greater and grander story. So I want to make two points tonight. The first one is that we are called to run the race. Say that to your neighbor. We are called to run the race. Now I'm going to read for us from two passages in the book of Hebrews. Now the author of the book of Hebrews is unknown, um, but the, um, most of the early Christians were Jewish believers and then, obviously, Jesus said this thing, I'm coming back soon, right? Have you ever read that in the Bible? Where Jesus says, I'm coming back soon. It's like when your wife says, okay, can we leave? Yeah, I'll be done soon. <laughs> no, no laughing. Okay. <laughs> so Jesus said, I'm coming back soon. And now these Jewish believers are confronted with did they make the right decision? Because there's adversary now facing them because they are Christians. There are certain things that now belong to them as Christians that they are now expected to also act out, to make part of their lives. Um, and now they face this question like, have we made the right decision in giving our allegiance, pledging our allegiance to this Christ, the Messiah, who allegedly rose from the grave and said He's coming back soon, but now He's not coming back. And they expected him to come back imminently. Like when you go to the shop and you come back with ice cream. Okay, that's what my wife wants at the moment. <laughs> but 
and they're contemplating, did we make the right decision? And maybe we often find ourselves in that same space where you've given your life over to Christ. And he says, yes, I am a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. But now Jesus is still not coming back. And there are certain things in your life that you are confronted with. Because let's be real, there are certain things that belong to a Christian and certain things that don't. There are certain behaviors that are part of Christianity and certain behaviors that are not. There are certain things that would be so acceptable in society which does not belong to those who belong to God. And when you pledge allegiance to Christ, there is a life change that takes place. Paul says you put off the old self so that you can put on, clothe yourself with the new self. So there's a different expectation that our lives should bear fruit that represent the one whom we profess to follow. But what if you made the wrong choice? What if this is just airy-fairy stuff and Jesus isn't really coming back? Then most probably there is a simpler way for you to live your life that doesn't expect as much. And the letter of Hebrews is directed to, to remind the, the Jewish believers of who Christ is. That Christ is greater than everything else that they've ever encountered. And he goes through the, all of that in the first couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews. But I want to read for us tonight from chapter 12. I know the translation on the board is a bit different to the one I have here, but it's okay. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That's a great encouragement. There's a way for you to run this Christian race without becoming weary and discouraged. Anyone face that sometimes? Then I have to raise your hand. We do. But there's a, it's an encouragement from Scripture that says there's a way for you and I to run this race so that we will not become weary and discouraged. And there's three aspects I want to draw. The first one is to lay aside every weight and sin. Lay aside every weight and sin. Now, there's a difference between weight and sin. But let's do a quick test. One day, when you die and you go to heaven, there are certain things that will go with you and certain things that will not go with you, right? So, you have a job. Does your job go with you into heaven? Okay. What did you say? Please no. All right. Yeah. So, um, I'm an evangelist by heart, and then when we're in heaven, everyone's safe. So, um, I do hope there's golf courses on, in heaven. Um, yeah. But, so, if your job doesn't transcend from the temporary to the eternal, your life cannot be about your job. Does your bank balance go with you into eternity? So, your life cannot be the, about the abundance of things, materialism. Does it make sense? So there are certain things that does not transcend from the temporary to the eternal. So the things that are temporary cannot define what your life should be about. And that's very important because society works the other way around. Life is about the abundance of your possessions and setting up for yourself a great retirement. 
We have a great retirement set up for us already by Christ. So that which is eternal is greater than that which is temporary. So we lay aside every weight. And the weight is not necessarily something that is bad, but it's something that's hindering you from running your race with endurance, with, by running your race with this zeal and this fire, and not to grow weary, not to stop in the middle. And that might even be your work, where you're so um, focused or committed to your work that it's causing you not to run the race that God has get, given you to run with endurance. So to lay aside the weight, things that you need to strip off in light of what God has called you for. Again, that which is eternal is greater than that which is temporary. And we need to pause, have these moments and say, Lord, what are some of the things in my life that are weighty? Who many of you have run a marathon before? Have you run a marathon, Jamie? Probably a couple. Okay? So you want to be as light as possible, not to add extra weight. Now, you can run with two or three water backpacks on your back. And that, who needs water when they run? We all do. So water in itself is not an evil, but it's adding weight to your race. It needs to be stripped off. So you and I need to have these pause moments to say, Lord, what are some of the things that needs to be trimmed in my life? Jesus speaks about the abiding in Him. And then the, 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 the vine dresser comes and He prunes the vines that bear fruit, the branches that bear fruit, He prunes. Why? There's a cutting off. There's a weight that needs to be taken away so that more fruit can be produced. And then the sin. Sin will take you out of the race. Sin has only one agenda. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And sin that you and I keep um, entertaining in our lives has only one agenda. To bring about death. Now, sin is very deceitful. It portrays itself sometimes as a pet, something that you can fertile, that you can pet it. That's the word, right? Yeah, fertile is a nice word. Okay. Um, something that you can control, something that you have on a leash, and if you pull it back, it listens to you. And sin allows you to believe that you are in control. I can stop when I want to stop. That's the deception. Sin portrays itself as a dance partner. Hey, let's go for a couple of rounds, and when you're tired, you can put me down. No, sin is your captor. You are the captive. You are a slave to sin. So any sin that you keep on allowing in your life has only one agenda, and that's to bring about death in your life, and it will take you out of the race. So we lay aside the weight and the sin. And he says... Run with endurance. Run with endurance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I remember way back when I was much less fit than I am now. We went running with Jamie and a couple of people at some other water hut place. I can't remember. People go diving there as well. Um, and it was only like a 5K run or something. And I thought, yeah, cool. I can keep up with a girl for 5Ks. No. <laughs> So I tried to keep up with Jamie's pace for that first, like, 100 meters. <laughs> and then you realize, if I continue doing this, I will die. I will not make it. We will need to phone someone. They'll have to come pick me up. I will not make it. Your faith, your Christianity is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you, if you apply a sprint myth, um, methodology or ideology to a marathon, you will burn out. 
you will burn out. And sometimes we can fall into that trap as Christians that we think if I do more in a short, shorter amount of space, then I've proven myself to be a greater Christian. Or I think that by my works, God will validate me to say, yes, now I love you. Now I will answer your prayer. Now I will bring that breakthrough because you have run so hard. But God has never called you to run a sprint in a marathon. We're in it for the long haul. And it's that space where we say, we, we set ourselves towards the target, towards the goal. Um, and we apply ourselves for a marathon, not for a sprint. Then we also don't run with the, end in, uh, with, with the beginning in mind. All right? So luckily, we are a very prideful people. So if you were to start a race, um, and like, let's say the first kilometer into the race, you're like, yeah, I don't know if I should go continue. Um, Let's make it 500 meters, all right? Because 500 meters, we can still almost see here. And it's like, I can't turn around now. There's too many people around me. I'll look stupid. So instead of turning around and admitting defeat, I'll die forward. I'll just continue dying on this road. This is now my last breath. Um, but we don't run the race fixating on the starting point, saying, oh, how beautiful was the starting point. We once did an adventure race. It was a tough one. Um, and we... We came around, it wasn't an adventure race, it was just a mountain bike race. And we came around like another, another bend and another bend and another bend. And as we drove into this final stretch, I could physically see the finish line. And I'm like, there where those boards are, the, the promised land has arrived. And as I go and I'm ready to go straight, there's a marshal that says, this way, this way. And I'm like, no, I can't go any further. And we had to go another loop. But you, you, you run the race with the end in mind. It's like, I can't wait to get to the finish line, whether it is to receive a medal or just to receive water. But I want to get to that finish line. And we don't fixate on the things that has happened in the past. And in your own life, there are certain things that we have done, mistakes that we have made, that we can now continue to look back at and say, sure, I don't know if I'm worthy to run this race anymore. But we can't keep on fixating on the past. There are certain things that we have done and there are certain things that have been done to us. But we don't keep our focus there. We, we fix our eyes towards the end goal and we run this race with endurance. And then it says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. When um, couples get married, and we, we saw this again yesterday at Danette's cousin's wedding, there's a, a photographer looking at the, the bride, right? And then there's a photographer looking at the groom because they want to capture that moment where the groom sees his bride for the first time, okay? Is he going to cry? Um, are there emotions involved and all of that? Whom of you love seeing that moment as well? All right? I know that there's people who look at the bride and there's people who just sit there and look at the groom. It's like... <laughs> there's that awe, that wonder, that adoration... What does that look like for you when you think about Jesus? When you think about Christ, what does your awe and your adoration and your devotion towards Him look like today? Is He still the one that causes this passion and this zeal and this fire to arise in your heart to say, yes, Lord, you can have it all. You are worth all of my life. If you call me to give everything, I'll give it. In light of knowing you, there's nothing else that can compare. 
And how's that, that zeal, that fire for Jesus in your heart going? Because that's the thing that will fuel you for the race. The moment we take our eyes off of Christ, then we will start to grow weary and become discouraged. We sang that song, um, the, the ocean song. Peter started to sink in the water when he took his eyes off of Christ. As we fix our eyes upon Jesus, as we make Him the chief goal, the chief end, the chief end of our life's pursuit, that His glory, um, the worship of Jesus' name, if we make that the end goal, then you will run your race with endurance. In light of Christ, you will strip yourself from the weight and the sin that is keeping you from running towards your Savior. So we are called to run the race. And then secondly, we are called to run together. Hebrews 10, so just a couple of chapters back, says the following. And I want to ask, um, is Ruel close by? Not? Okay. Imagine there's heavenly music in the background. Hebrews 10, uh, it's okay, Red, Will, it's fine. Thank you. Hebrews 10 from verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, the return of Christ approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. We spoke about that which is temporary, that is less than that which is eternal. So whatever is temporary needs to be subject to that which is eternal. Now I want to give us a, a little bit of a curveball tonight. When couples get married there's this moment where we lead them into this promise to one another. Do you promise to be faithful to your wife um, until death? So our marriages are temporary. As beautiful as they might be, they do not transcend into eternity. So marriage cannot be the pinnacle of your life. When I had a conversation with a couple the other week about just this idea, um, they were like, oh, what? We're not going to be married in heaven? And for, like, if you think about it, if I'm not going to be married to Riet, like, that sucks. <laughs> I would very much like to be married to Riet in heaven. But whatever is eternal is greater than that which is temporary. So whatever God has got prepared for us in heaven will be greater than the joy and the intimacy that I experience in my relationship with my wife. My mind cannot comprehend that. But I can bring our marriage subject to that which is eternal. Jesus is preparing for Himself a bride. His church. His church will go with Him into eternity. The relationship with the church transcends the temporary into the eternal. Our relationships as the church transcends our marriage relationships. Let that sink in for just a moment. Because sometimes what we do in this race of life, when things go tough, 
we say, yo, we need to take a break from church for a moment because we just need to figure stuff out a bit. Things at home are a bit hectic. So we're just taking a break from church just to find our feet, just to breathe again. And in that moment, we are making a theological error. We are placing that which is temporary and saying this is greater than that which is eternal. Do you want your marriage to flourish? Bring it into that which is eternal. Not saying burn out. Hear me clearly. But you cannot remove yourself from the vine and think that you still bear fruit. And if we're serious about running this race, whether you are single, whether you are engaged, whether you are married, whether you have children or not, bring your, your little piece into a greater picture. So I'm making my life subject to spiritual family. That comes close. It means you allow spiritual family to speak into your marriage, to speak what we did with, the, with Rihan, with the child dedication. It's not just a ritual that we do as a church, friends. It's them bringing Rihang into spiritual family to say, hold us accountable because this child is greater than just our marriage. The word that Rihang and I got for children was that we're not trusting God for children. We're trusting God for a prophet. It's not about us. So when God entrusts children to us, that does not become the pinnacle of your life. When God gives you a spouse, that does not become the pinnacle of your life. When God gives you a job that you love and you are passionate about, it cannot become the pinnacle of your life. Because if you remove yourself out of that which is eternal, you set yourself up to grow weary, tired in the race, which has eternal consequences. In Hebrews 10 it says, If we keep on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no other sacrifice that remains, but only the fearful expectation of judgment. Christ will not die again. He has died already. And when we add ourselves to this, we are saying, I need you to hold me accountable to the race that I've said yes to. When there's sin in my life, I need you to call me out. I need you to bring correction. Sometimes there are things that weigh heavy on us that you don't even see. And you need your brothers and your sisters around you to call it out so that we can run our race with endurance. Act 6. This glorious picture of Christ being worshipped. And then it says, He, we read that again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. I want to ask Adelia to come and just share. A, it was a dream, right? dream that she had a couple of weeks back. There's a mic there. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, Jakob also asked me to share a little bit about being on mission together and how during the month of September, as connect groups, we joined together. We um, you know, kind of just merged our connect groups and spent a little bit of time um, with people other than just the person that you see every week. And I'm sure for um, those who joined with me and that I joined with, we can all agree that there's something different that happens the moment that we actually do this spiritual family thing together, that we are on mission together. Um, and I shared with Yaku a while back, I had a dream. Um, sometimes when I dream, it's weird. It's about stuff that happened in the previous few weeks or days or so. But sometimes I have a dream and it's different. 
um, and there's something strange about it. And I, um, I'll share the dream and then um, I'll share what I experienced from the Holy Spirit, what it meant. Um, I dreamt I was having coffee with a friend, um, kind of just doing life together. And as we kind of finished our coffee and I'm on my way to leave, uh, we still had some coffee in our mugs and we, was, we were speaking about God. We were encouraging one another. Um, yeah, we were just stirring up um, each other's faith. And in my mug, there was a fish, okay? Um, I don't know how many of you know it, but fish are not supposed to live in coffee. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> um, but the fish started to swim all around, making a little tornado. Um, and it was almost like the fish was realizing that this is not normal. They are in an abnormal um, liquid. And we kept speaking and we kept speaking and the fish jumped out of the mug. Right. But now also another abnormal place for a fish to be is hopping around on the carpet. That's also not normal. So this fish, um, it was a goldfish, hopped out of the coffee and was hopping around on the carpet. And myself and the person I was with, we realized, okay, this is also abnormal. And um, we tried to catch the fish. And as we were trying to catch it, it hopped kind of into my sleeve. Um, and the natural thing that I did in my dream was to put it in a fish bowl of clear water. And as I put the goldfish into the bowl of clear water, it turned into a blue fish, um, which was strange. Okay, fish don't change their color either. And um, I woke up and I have this book on my shelf that comes a long way, um, all about possible meanings for dreams that you have. Um, and I walked through the shelf and I wanted to go check up, you know, maybe what does a goldfish in a dream mean or what does coffee mean and all those things. And I experienced Holy Spirit stopping me and saying, wait, let me explain it to you before you go look at the book. And um, what he said to me was exactly that as we do life together, as we are a spiritual family with each other, other people, people are in the world in a place where not, they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be with God. That's our heart. That's our mission. We want people to hear about Jesus. We want people to know and experience Him personally. And as we do life together, Jesus says, by this the world will know you are my disciples, um, by loving Him. And as we love Him and we love those around us, people will see that. People will realize this is what is missing in my life. And they will jump out of their abnormal situation because they want something that's real, that's different. And then us as a spiritual family can grab them and draw them into what we've got. We can do life together with them as well. And we have this opportunity to disciple people into Jesus. And I experienced the Holy Spirit saying that the water bowl um, is a representation of Jesus who is our living water. And as we um, yes, invite people in to be in living water with us as a spiritual family, they will start to change. There will be a renewing of that person because we are in Christ. Um, so I just want to read two scriptures, exactly those two scriptures. Um, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's in Matthew 18, verse 20. So where we gather, where we do life together, where we place value on our spiritual family, there God will be. There the living water will be. Um, and then the scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
and we have this awesome, awesome privilege, as Yaquis just preached, that we can be spiritual family. We can place value where value is supposed to be placed. We can see what is greater, what will be eternal. And we can do that together and build God's church together. And that is why we are on mission together, because together we can do so much more. And what we do will last into eternity. Thanks. So I want us just to, to close our eyes for a moment, just where you're sitting. And I just want to ask three questions that I want you just to, to ponder on. The first one is, how is your passion for Jesus? As you are sitting here tonight, how's your passion, your zeal for Jesus? Is He still the greatest treasure in your heart? Or are there other things that have taken His place? That He might be in the midst, but He's not on the throne. Second question is, what needs to be stripped away or thrown down? What weight or sin needs to be cut off in your life? What is hindering you from running the race? And then the last question is, are you a lone ranger or are you running together? Do you have people in your life who keep you accountable? Are you connected? Something as practical as serving together on a Sunday, serving when um, there's events and stuff happening, making ourselves available for the purposes and the mission of God to say, yes, Lord, I want to intentionally dip myself into relationships. I want to be on mission together. end tonight um, in, a, in a little bit of a vulnerable moment. Um, so I want you to um, just turn together with someone, um, two people, max three people, just to turn to someone next to you. And, and I want you to respond to these two things. The one is, what do you need prayer for? Just reflecting on the first three questions. What do you need prayer for? What can this person pray for with you? And then the second thing is, who can you pray for tonight? Who is there maybe in your life? And this can be a family member, a colleague, a friend, um, someone in your neighborhood who does not know Jesus. When we think about Act 6, that glorious picture of multitudes upon multitudes, standing before the throne of God and worshiping the King of Kings, you are not sure whether they will be among those who are worshiping. And God calls us to be on mission with Him that there is a ministry of reconciliation, a message of the gospel that God has entrusted to His church. And if we don't take it, then the mission fails. So what do you need prayer for? And then who can you pray for tonight? And I want to invite you just while this prayer moment is, is happening, if you are here tonight and you are unsure whether your voice is added to that multitude of voices, in eternity, then I'd love to have a prayer moment with you right now while the others are praying as well. So you can come to the front um, if you feel that's you. Otherwise, I'd love for you to turn together and just to respond to those two.
What do you need prayer for? And who can you pray for tonight? some of you are, are still praying and you're, you're welcome just to continue but um, as I'm standing here and just watching the prayers unfolding um, I really want to encourage you to, to make yourself part of relationships um, to have these places where you gather with people um, we have connect groups happening during the week if you're not in one Go to the info table and sign up for a connect group. But you have these spaces during the week where we get into the Word together. We encourage one another. We stir one another on for um, love and good works. And we pray together for one another. But we pray for the lost. That God has called His church to prioritize the lost. Um, yeah, and I want to conclude just tonight with a very simple prayer. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you would bless our relationships. Lord, that you would bestow a blessing and a grace over our relationships. And that our friendships, our relationships, Lord, would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.